John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 548.1S1415. Certificate number 30150. The Great Lisbon Earthquake. What would you say are your great formative natural disasters? Are there... Acts of God that, like, stick in your mind uh, from just cable news and front pages of papers and people talking about them that shaped you? Well, when I was a kid, uh, I um, there were two big earthquakes that happened in Alaska when I was a kid. One when I was in fifth grade or sixth grade and one when I was in eighth grade. And both of them... Uh, <clears throat> had a profound effect because growing up in Alaska, the, the 1964 earthquake is super present in everyone's That's mind. That's the big 9.0 yeah. record one, the Prince William Sound one. Yeah. And the wreckage of, of, of the 64 earthquake was all around us growing up, right? In 1974, it had only been 10 years and- There's nothing to wreck there. Come on. Well, you're right. Uh, but, you know, whole villages were were- swamped and, and never, uh, never returned People to. People ended up having to relocate. It was a Katrina-like thing on the coast. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the tidal wave like picked up locomotives and moved them blocks into town, but still, tore up the railroad tracks. A decade later, those locomotives are probably not still there. People just, you know, very nicely going around them at but, the intersection. But you see, you see where things are trashed. And, uh, and in particular, there's a, there's a park by the airport called Earthquake Park, which used to be a neighborhood called <laughs> Turnigan, and the whole neighborhood, uh, the ground liquefied, and the neighborhood just slid into the sea. And rather than rebuild it, they they left it as a park. And we go there every time I'm in Alaska, and it's just this tumbling. Is it a somber 9/11 memorial vibe? Like it's called Earthquake Park, and I assume. People died in in the it was, 64 quake. There were people that died, although surprisingly few. Huh. But, you know, like it, houses just cracks opening up, people falling in them. It was somber when I was a kid. Now it's so long ago yeah. that it just feels like, ha ha. And there are, you know, there are explanatory plaques. And that's, you know, that's true in general. Like yeah. the vibe at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is very different 
than the vibe at the World War One Memorial or the Spanish-American War Memorial. Right. There's still a lot of uh, solemnity at the Vietnam Memorial. But it's funny how it expires. Well, and there was a lot more at the Vietnam Memorial when it first opened. Oh, sure. You know, you went there and it was like a, a holy place. It was place. a shrine, yeah. And now people are taking selfies and whatnot. But um, <clears throat> my uncle and aunt were living in Alaska in 64, and they both had these profound earthquake stories about how a crack opened up and came – came at their house and my uh, there was an avalanche in the mountains where my uncle was at the time. So everybody had a story. So when I experienced my first big earthquake in fifth or sixth grade where it, you know, knocked me out of my chair, I was in the library at the school and you hear it before you feel it. You know, it sounds like a, a rumbling yeah. and then, then it, it hits and it, it knocked me out of my chair. The books spilled off the shelves and of course you're, you're raised to think like the, you this know, is it. the big one. And, um, and so even after the shaking stops, you're just like pure adrenaline. And then in eighth grade, I was sitting in class and I actually saw the floor, like a wave come across the floor, you know, kind of pull up the tiles as it swung through the class and it, it knocked everybody off their off their tape. You know, we all, all our chairs fell down. We all fell down. My dad said that he was driving and the phone poles were waving. These are big earthquakes. Yeah. <clears throat> and so both of them like, you know, really, uh, rocked and rocked my world. And then, uh, is there any like em emotional repercussion? Is it like life is impermanent? We cannot yeah. even rely on terra firma. I mean, once the ground... Because I've never been in an earthquake that wasn't just like, was that a truck going by? Like, once in LA and once in Seattle, I've had that. Was that a truck going by? And I checked my phone, and it was a tiny earthquake. The one in 2001... Yeah, I wasn't here for the Nisqually. I mean, that one, I, I was looking out the window, and we watched my next-door neighbor's chimney peel away from their house and completely fall on the house next door. But those ones in Alaska where the ground isn't solid anymore? Yeah. Oh, Yeah. You never forget it. I've always kind of wanted to be in one. I know. And I know that, I know that I, you know, the thing, the overriding thing that happens during that is panic that this is the big one and your city is gone. And that uh -huh. is not unrealistic in Seattle or Alaska or LA. Right. But I Because the one in Alaska, it shook for five minutes. Wow. So, I mean, think about five minutes. That's like, uh, no, no roller coaster ride is that long, no, you know? No, you're just like, it will never end and things are falling <laughs> this, down. It's this not is the new normal. Uh, <laughs> do I have Wi-Fi in my new shaking scenario? It's insane. Uh, and there also, there were a couple of volcanoes that blew up and, and covered Anchorage with, you know, like thick ash, like the sky yeah. went dark in the middle of the day and ash rained down. So th that's also that would be my heavy. candidate, you know, because I'm six one Mount St Helens erupts eighty one or 80? eighty eighty. I was in kindergarten, so I'm like five or six when Mount St Helens erupts, and uh, but I think I'm too young. Like I, it's, I, I remember the ash on the cars looking like snow and being like, but when you're a kid, you just you don't know it's weird. You're like, well, there's volcanoes in my dinosaur books and my Greek mythology <laughs> books. I guess now there's one. Now there's one a couple hours outside of town. I was eleven. And my brother used to live on the slopes of Mount St. Helens in a little moss-covered hippie cottage. I don't know. He was driving logging trucks for a living at the time. And I went to visit him in the mid-70s. And so when it blew up, like, I had a very 
personal understanding the, of what the side of that mountain looked like when it was there. But I was in Alaska, so I didn't get the ash. The um, yeah, I feel like I kind of missed out on. I was already an adult by the time Katrina happened, and that's really the visceral where you can sense what's happening to a city and a people. Yeah, um, kind of a you are there moment. Because when I was a kid, it was like, you know, the big hurricanes, the Andrews and the Hugos, they were, they were just an, a, a quick succession on the cable news. Right. I was watching the, the um, was, it, was it an A's Giants game, the day of the Loma Prieta earthquake? Oh, oh you were. I, I was, so I was, watching on, I, mean, not, I was watching on TV from Korea, yeah. and suddenly Bob Costas is like, whoa, or whoever. Who was it? Greg Gumbel? I can't remember who's doing the show. And, you know, and then the picture goes out. Um, so that was kind of like, that. I felt like that had touched my life a little, but none of them really like kind of stopped and made me think, you know, the way a, a natural disaster can. You're absolutely right that, that <clears throat> I always kind of secretly long for them. And when they happen, I always kind of guiltily wish they'd been bigger. But that's for different reasons. You're, you're just excited because you've got World War II sea rations and, <laughs> and guns in your basement. I mean, I want to ride it, you know, ride the dragon as the world comes to an end. Yeah, I just want the experience. I feel like I'd be very good. This is one of the oh, yeah. many things that I've never experienced that I'm confident um, I would be amazing at where others are traumatized. Some people shriek and some people get very collected. And, uh, and I don't think you know which one you are until, it, until the world goes crazy. I get the, these aren't natural disasters, but I had the same kind of feeling during the Exxon Valdez mm. news cycles, mm -hmm. you know, just seeing all the, the poor birds and sea animals with college students trying to brush all the gunk off of them. And, you know, just hearing the numbers about how many were going to die and how, you know, yeah. that, that really shaped me. Not a natural disaster though. God did not put. A drunk captain and, big, <laughs> and a big oil tanker at the... You know, my mom worked for the pipeline. Oh, that's right. And we were, we were in Alaska and she, you know, she woke up and was part of the, um, not first response, right? But she knew all the people. She knew, yeah. knew everybody in Valdez. She knew all the systems because she was the, she ran the computers for the pipeline. Well, so that one hit us all hard. I don't think it was her fault. As I look back on the facts. For sure not her fault because they came. <laughs> Unless she did the computer program that like that booze tested all the employees. <laughs> the the uh, the investigation came and you know, six six guys in blue suits filed into her office. Wow. And she was like, Wanna see the files? And she walked them down to the file cabinet where she had all of the disaster routines, everything that she had practiced a thousand times. She was like you know, you're going to have to look elsewhere for the, for the, where the mistakes were made because they weren't made here. Not in this office. And they were all like, thank you, ma'am. I feel like your mom would be the most convincing person <laughs> yeah. to, to turn away the men in black. Yeah. They all just moved on down the hall. And I had literal nightmares after 9-11, even though I was in my twenties. Like, not like, I mean, not like wake up in a sweat, but like all my, like kind of acrophobic dreams mm -hmm. with lots of, with lots of height and girders and, you know, just kind of the, you know, cause you, that's again, not a natural disaster. I don't know if people know this. Uh -huh. That was perpetrated by man. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, places you feel safe include, uh, downtown skyscrapers and airplanes. And I'd spent lots of time in both. So the idea that both of them were fundamentally 
unsure, you know, the way that you might've felt about your classroom floor at school. That I think that did a number on my psyche for, for a little while. How long after, uh, 9-11 did you first go to New York and did you first see the pile? Like how? Yeah, I, it was already trucks scooping stuff out of a big square pit by the time I was there. And it, that would have been, it would have been a few years later. I wasn't in downtown. You weren't part of the, uh, the initial response to that. <laughs> I didn't rush there like Steve Buscemi or whatever. Um, <laughs> I, it, it had been a few years. And so you can still see that, you know, at the time it was still a square absence, but uh, it might've been a, uh, by that time it might as well have been a construction site. Did you see ground zero when it was still ground zero? Yeah. You know, I was living in New York that summer. Oh, I forgot. And that. yeah, I went to the top of the world trade center on, on, uh, August 30, 31st. Weird by the way. Lots, lots of good things to do in Manhattan. I don't know why you went to Windows of the World. Well, I, we were. I was. I was coming back to Seattle because um, the Long Winter's first album was done, and we needed to put a band together to tour. And I tried to put a band together in New York, but it was just super complicated because everything's really expensive. And and I was used to living out here, where you just leave your drum kit set up. You go in any time because you have your own detached garage that has all your Christmas lights. Not in it. no more. You don't. And in New York, it was like you paid for a practice space by the hour and you had to put all your stuff in a locker and I just couldn't get my head around it. So as I was leaving New York, I said, what do I want to do? I go, I want to ride the cyclone at Coney Island. I've never done that. I want to go to the top of the world trade center. I want, you know, I had you're like, such an early seventies kid to want, <laughs> Like your definitive King Kong is climbing the World Trade Center with Jessica Lange. It is. Go to the Chrysler Building, John, for crying out loud. No, it was the World Trade Center. There were there were like four cliched New York things. I'd been living there for six months and I'd never done it. Why would you go out to Coney Island? Went out and had a hot dog, rode the cyclone, loved the cyclone. Went to the top of the World Trade Center. And while I was there with a friend, while we were up there, we were like, how would you blow this up if you wanted to really blow this? Because they'd already tried it, you know? You know, you don't have to confess this on a podcast. How would you blow this up? There can up? just be things that happen to you that you don't say <laughs> later. Like, how do I blow up the World Trade Center? And, you know, 11 days later, it was gone. And so oh, that, this was this was literally late August. August 31st, 2001. Wow. So I I got on an airplane to Seattle two days later or whatever, and, and then- You had you know, an alibi. A week later, yeah. But I went back because we were on tour not long after that. So I was there. It was still on fire. Wow. And um, yeah, that's just a bad. Like you were there in late 2001? Yeah. Wow. That's a bad scene. That was a really bad scene, man. That's, I don't know. I that's don't one know. of the things people say about 9-11. Yeah, never forget. Do you remember that Time Magazine cover <laughs> that said, man, this is a really bad scene? <laughs> Wasn't well, that what George Bush said from the top probably. of the pile with his, with his he megaphone? He probably said similarly eloquent things. <laughs> I can hear you. Man, this is a bad scene. We're going to get, um, I'm going to hear from people who tell me that, Ken, there is no observation deck in the Chrysler building. And that's true. I amend oh. my response. I should have said Rockefeller Center. Years before I had been to the top of the Empire State Building. So it's not like. But she didn't show up. She didn't show up. <laughs> I walked around and I think from the top of there, I was like, how would you throw yourself off this? If you were going to throw yourself off this building, how would you do it? You couldn't get over these fences. I also, I think I was there just to see the dirigible oh, uh, sure. docking station. Yeah, that's why I, you know, I 100% went to the Empire State Building my first or second time in Manhattan, unabashedly. Because you'd seen Sleepless in Seattle. No, because I'd seen <laughs> King Kong, you the know, original. you, you got to do it. 
I don't think I'd ever seen an affair to remember. Maybe. I was a TCM kid at that time. But, you know, uh, natural disasters are, you know, pretty much a constant through, you know, if there's one thing that links hominids from like hunter-gatherers to now, it's they have to deal with the occasional storm, lava flow, mudslide, earth moves. Where are uh, the places that are the most free from natural disasters? Yeah, I've thought about this. Actually. Gobi Desert. It does seem like I mean, there's got to be sandstorms in the Gobi sandstorm, Desert, right? It seems like America is kind of equally cursed. Like the second you get out of the hurricane zone, you move into tornado zone, and the yeah. second you get out of that, you move into well, now avalanche, and then west into now we have forest fires, zone. which were not a thing before. The whole west is now off the off the grid, and that's a. And you know, supernatural disaster. Last time I was in Manhattan, there was it was all hazy. You could not see the skyline from Brooklyn because of California and British Columbia wildfires. Isn't that insane? So yeah, it's literally insane. Like this is why we'll never have grandkids because my children are traumatized by every moment of daily life being a running natural disaster. It wasn't that long ago. Well, I hate to keep telling these stories about how I was there the day before, but I was in New York the day before Katrina. John Hodgman and I were driving you in mean Sandy? from- uh, Sandy? Sandy. Okay. Because uh, you, you it's okay to be in New York the day before Katrina. No, it was Sandy. We were driving in and all the uh, the big electronic signs on the highway in New Jersey that were, you know, like 20 minutes to New York, the signs all said, get off the highway, take shelter immediately. And the sky was a weird color, but it was calm, perfectly calm. And we drove to- the Newark airport and got on a plane and the whole time thinking like, are they going to cancel the flight? Yeah. And we got off. We, we got off, we flew to the West coast and then the hurricane hit that night, which was also super weird. You're constantly escaping disasters. I mean, Mount St. Helens, you were there, you were there years before. Yeah. It was a couple of years before. So I can't be held responsible. You weren't running ahead of a wall of lava. I'm not like some kind of storm king that brings the, Brings you, the horror. D- you did your ceremonial dance everywhere, <laughs> Windows of the World, Mount St. Helens, for maybe a century. The formative natural disaster for Western civilization was the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. And you really? ask about what? Yeah, we don't think about it much today. How many times today have you thought about the Great Lisbon earthquake of 1755? Hardly well, at all. Well, when you mentioned it. You've I hard, thought about it. hardly spared a moment for it. <laughs> From the time I woke up this morning, I've only thought of it Were once. you aware that there was, a, like if I had said, hey, what happened in Lisbon in 1755, would you say, is that the earthquake? Or would hmm. you say, I don't know, people eating tapas? No, I had heard of the earthquake, but I don't think if you'd said what it what happened in Lisbon, I would have gone to it. I think I would have said, I don't know, uh, horses danced in, <laughs> with the flowered headdresses? Danced gaily. What the hell? Luckily... I am not a game show host off duty. I don't come to your house and just say, John Roderick, for all the beans, what happened on the morning of November 1st, 1755? I would lose all my beans. I don't have a long, a long microphone with a skinny handle. Because I would have bet it all, Ken. I would have gone all in on my final question. I mean, you're asking about what parts of the world are reasonably disaster resistant historically. And Western Europe's pretty good. Right. It's not, except for the Mediterranean, which has... Volcanoes and faults. I mean, you got Mount Vesuvius, like, you know, from the maybe 16th or 17th century on, every 10 or 20 years, Mount Vesuvius wipes out a village. Etna did its its job. 
But except for the, the that volcanic activity in Italy, yeah, and the storms don't come off the Atlantic. You know, it's like a. I mean, maybe now they will. Future links, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but in our time, it was like a once in a century occurrence right. for any Atlantic cyclone to to reach Europe. Well, once the magnetic poles flip, oh sure, then it's going to be all over. Then Portugal will be at the top of Europe, and you'll be so confused. <laughs> you have to go. You'll have to escape south to to Denmark. Um. So it's just, you know, there's in the European mind that gave us the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution and a lot of things that we, you know, now may regret. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, these kinds of these kinds of epical natural disasters like the San Francisco earthquake or Katrina, they're kind of few and far between. Yeah. Has, um, has Germany ever had an earthquake? Exactly. Like what's Germany's biggest storm slash they're just not shaped as a people by this. Maybe that's why they get so cocky and put spears on or on their helmets every few decades. I think it's, I think their greatest storm storm risk is uh, uh, tempting the Russians. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get, yeah. in a lot of these stories, if you're in very Western Europe, Germany is your natural disaster. That's right. If you're in central Europe, <laughs> Russia is your natural disaster. <laughs> um, but you can see why this is kind of the pivotal moment that changes how Europe thinks about a lot of things. On the morning of November 1st, 1755, um, Lisbon wakes up and heads to church. It's All Saints Day, one of the biggest, mm-hmm. the biggest events of the liturgical calendar. So everybody who's anybody is in church, or if they're really anybody, their servants are home preparing an elaborate meal. You know, this is their Thanksgiving, Christmas, Super Bowl. Whatever. That's what they call it in Portugal to this day. Hey, it's the uno de novembre, the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, 120 miles southwest off the whatever that cape is on the southwesternmost point of the uh, the Portugal, Algarve, Cape Saint something. Yeah, that mm-hmm. seems right. Um, three tectonic plates meet. Oh, an African one, uh, an American one, like a one that goes all the way to the, across the Atlantic and a Eurasian one. I thought that there was a seam in the middle of the Atlantic running north, south, where the plates were moving apart. There is. And I don't know why there's a fault line here, but there is there, you know, we're not in charge. It can do what it wants basically. And it does. Um, on that morning, there happens to be a little slippage along that plate and, that creates... That's not what you want. No, it's it's because it's only, what, 120 miles off the coast of Portugal, 32,000 Hiroshima's worth of worth of force being created underwater there does exactly what you would expect. It creates, like, like in Prince William Sound, it creates massive movement of water. So rivers flood in Scotland. Hmm. There's uh, people who were too close to the shore in Brazil. Their village gets washed away. Reports from Finland, reports from Barbados of, of, mm-hmm. of Templars. But it's worst of all in Lisbon, the closest big European city. Um, at 9.30 a.m., everybody's either at mass or, again, in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the sermon, <laughs> two options. The servant class. You can either be the mass class or the kitchen <laughs> class back then. That's what they called upstairs, downstairs. At 9.30, all the bells in town begin to chime at once, which is something we miss out today on modern-day earthquakes. Intentionally, have, or they no, all just... They, they, oh, they, they start, start shaking. To, they, they start, start rocking. Oh, yeah. wow. And I guess you don't lock the clapper or anything, so that's something we miss. Don't lock the clapper. <laughs> that classic Blue Oyster Cult song. 
Like today, there would be like today, the government would tell you there is an earthquake or a tsunami is coming, and you would hear some noises. Well, here in the Northwest, we have tsunami sirens. Just a couple of weeks ago, I mean, there was an advisory. An the advisory. sirens didn't go when the Tonga um, no. volcanic event happened. But all on the on the Washington coast, there are tsunami uh, warning sirens, and your phone will go off. Like my parents mm, in Squim mm-hmm. are close enough to the ocean that their phone said, "Well, you're above the waterline, but uh, once you." Keep watching this space. And we also have volcano warnings, depending on where you are. And the best parts of Washington are right where the volcano lahar and the tsunami meet. And don't forget, you know, our what's the name of the fault we have, the fault line we have here. So the, yeah, the Seattle fault. Earthquakes too. So right it and I and I like to think of it as Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> Is where really, all, all those Venn <laughs> circles overlap. It's the place where the tsunami's going to hit the lahar. Boy, that's going to be a fireworks display. It, people might not know what a lahar is, although in the future they might have one every day. In the future they may be sentient lahars. But if, if you've got snow on a big stratovolcano and it erupts, it gets warm. Yes. The snow becomes water and the water's got to go somewhere. Spoilers, downhill. Downhill uh, mixed with superheated mixed with mud. the rest of the mountain. <laughs> And no matter where that happens, it always hits Tacoma, Washington. It's weird. That's right. Even if it happens in Italy, (laughs) Tacoma is wiped out. It just keeps going downhill until it hits Commencement Bay. Um, So all the bells clang. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is not an, uh, you know, there haven't been, I mean, there have been minor earthquakes in living memory in Portugal, but nothing big. And, And earthquake science, tectonic plate science doesn't exist yet. No prediction. It's in its infancy. In fact, it is born on November 1st, 1755, oh. as we will see. So people would have no idea what was happening, or most people would just, there's no living memory of a thing that rang the church bells, right? There'd be stories. Yeah. Dep- yeah. Nothing. It's not, it's not, oh, one of these, or even a Californian, is this the one? Right. It's really like, why are they ringing all them bells? Right. What is happening? Um, and I guess maybe All Saints Day is the worst day for church bells to be your alert system, because <laughs> they'd be ringing anyway. Following the bells, there are reports of just a horrible grinding noise beneath the earth, you know, the kind of thing that nobody wants to feel in the pit of their stomach. Can confirm. And that follows a full six minutes of <gasps> of uh, Lisbon on a... I don't yeah. know, something that goes... Like, blah, 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 like blah, one blah. of those special effects roller stages that just... Exactly. On gimbals where you yeah, can gimbals. simulate a, a plane crash or something. So now Lisbon is inside of a bay. It's like an estuary yeah. of the Tagus River. And, yes. the, and, the, and the city itself faces kind of away from the ocean, right? Yeah, it's, south or southeast, yeah. the Baixa district. The Baixa district in f- five minutes ceases to exist, basically. Whoa, whoa! The city is just leveled. The cathedral is gone. Whole neighborhoods are gone. Have you been there? I have not. I assume you have. A lot. <laughs> right. It's a it's a wonderful city and it never, you know, and it uh, frankly, no offense to Portugal, but it looks like it's been there forever. Mm-hmm. Like it looks um it looks like a any, like a place in the Star Wars uni- universe that's been artificially <laughs> aged. Yeah, uh, exactly. If you've been to the historic old town of Lisbon, it is not newer than November 1755. But I wouldn't have thought that it w- it was only as new as 1755. I mean, something, you know, there, there was a quick rebuilding, as we'll see, but um, the waterfront neighborhoods, which kind of face, again, face that estuary on the inland side, just basically slid into the Tagus. Wow. Um, there is, you know, the main thing you're worried about with an undersea 
uh, earthquake is, of course, the following tsunami wave. Right. And what happens when your city's collapsing and sliding? Everybody runs to the riverbank to try to get away from the city just in time for 20 feet of water to Whoa. come in off the Atlantic and up the up the Tagus. Oh, my goodness. Um, so they're in the exact worst place. It is estimated that um, perhaps 50,000 people died. Is that low or is it high? We don't have a number. That's not... That's not the top all time. And if you look at the most fatal earthquakes, they're all big Chinese or Near Eastern cities, and they're all, you know, six-figure deaths in a, in a matter of, of days. Right. Um, or, you know, in, in many cases, some immediate, many in fires afterwards. Because that's what happens here. Uh, a five-day firestorm. It being All Saints Day, all the candles are lit in all the churches. Which is the worst time ever for, for <laughs> yeah, your church yeah, yeah. to start doing this. The city just lights goes up like a tinderbox. So like San Francisco earthquake, the it fire then subsequently burns. Becomes a five-day fire. I think the fire may be as fatal as the earthquake. The population of Lisbon, if 50,000 people died, I can't imagine the population of Lisbon was like a million people or something. It must have been, it must have been a couple hundred thousand, right? Uh, yeah, between two and 300,000 people. One in five or six Lisbonians? There's no way it's Lisbonians. It's Lisbonians. It's not the Lisbonites? I'm sure that they pronounce it in a way that takes the bone out. <laughs> Lisbonian. Lo, li, Lisboa. Why, why oh, do, Lisboa is Why do they, they have a French them. accent? Lisboa. Yeah, know. I'm sure All it's, Europeans have it's something accent. else in Portuguese, yeah. for sure. It's a, it's probably a nasal, it's something with a tilde on it that we don't have. It's probably Lisboanese. And I'm going to have to say some Portuguese names here in a second, and I want to apologize in advance <laughs> no to chance. all the post-Brazilians of the future, because this is going to be ugly. Well, you are fluent in Spanish, but Portuguese is not Spanish. No, it's kind of Spanish with a... With kind of a nasal accent and surprise, some surprising shiz and jiz that, yeah. that's, that's Spanish doesn't have. A, a serious lilt. There's a seriousness to the Portuguese. And I think we've said this before that it, because of that accent makes it sound like it's uh, maybe a Slavic language or something. You know, it's, even though it's romance, it's got all these jiz and shiz. You don't know where you're, where you're coming from. Um, Portugal at this time, you know, as you've mentioned, Lisbon is, it's one of the great cities of Europe, even though it's only got 300,000 people, but that's big for them. It's, uh, for um, them, yeah. It's a beautiful city. Um, Portuguese, the Portugal has ruled the seas for centuries. Right. I mean, that's, you know, the British Empire is on the rise and other powers have been on the rise, the Spanish. But, you know, they got there first and they got rich. Um so there's, this is not a second-rate European power. But they haven't really invested at home. Portugal, um, uh, Lisbon is like this, I, if I'm not wrong, <clears throat> the second oldest European city after Athens. Oh, is that right? Yeah, like it's Julius Caesar was there. Like it was a... I mean, its location on the Atlantic explains why there'd be a city there back to yeah. anytime people wanted. Well, on that sheltered there. harbor. Yeah. Um. But they didn't, you know, all that uh, money they were lifting from <laughs> South America and East Africa and India, right? Uh, the East Indies, like none of that flowed back into the people. I mean, the, there were affluent people there, and it was a as cities in 1755 go. It's a it's a striking city, but not a lot of investment. Where did the money at go? home? It went to where it always goes. A small group of people. One point five percent of the GDP of Portugal was at the time of the earthquake sitting in a single warehouse 
on the harbor in diamond form. Whoa. It was the- Are all, are all those diamonds in the harbor? Let's go. Let's go find them. <laughs> Is this going to be another um, gold under silt? Ominous? Yeah, it's a treasure hunt. Those always happen in Southeast Asia. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I think there's a lot of disparities between the uno por ciento and the rest of Lisbon, which kind of get thrown into contrast here. Um, speaking of the 1%, the king of Portugal at the time is Dom José the First. Luckily for him, he's not in Lisbon. He's out at some country palace. Estoril. Is that right? That's my guess. You have the you have a guess for a Portuguese <laughs> country palace? Yeah. Okay. What is Estoril? <laughs> Ask your doctor if Estoril is right for you. If, <laughs> if you are approaching the age of menopause, Estoril is a uh, is a castle outside of uh, Lisbon. That's kind of closer to the. Closer to the sea, and it's a funny, weird little mountain top place. Let's not even look it up. Let's say it's exactly here. I mean, no, it's probably at some Versailles type hunting lodge, right? It's not going to be in a castle on a hill, but let's say it's a castle on a hill for the movie because this is going to look good. Because what we're going to have is a man galloping up on a horse. Oh, good. Is that what you like? Oh, you, you approve? I love a man galloping up on a horse as part of an omnibus story. Exterior, Portuguese castle. Oh, wait. Up gallops. Is it Estoril or is it Sintra? Ask your doctor if Sintra is... <laughs> one, of them like, is one of them is menopause and one of them is male, uh, male erectile dysfunction. I feel like maybe Sintra is the cat. I can't remember. One of them is a crazy castle and one of them is like a seaside... Uh, Town. They're close to one another. I was picturing a big Versailles type hunting it, lodge. No, no, it's not that. It's like a thing where the where the stonework looks like a big octopus. It's the it's the castle from Little Mermaid. Yeah, it's a crazy like. There's a there's a uh, there's a Neptune. Okay, let's put it there. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Exterior weird <laughs> Atlantis castle. Okay, good. Day up gallops. Minister of State Sebastião José de Carvalho e Melo. Oh, nice. A great. Aristocrat and statesman. He is the Marquis de Pombal, and he is a little bit unusual in the Portuguese aristocracy at the time. He's ambitious. Yeah. Um, that, no that's one not else unusual. in the Portuguese aristocracy. <laughs> Everybody else is enjoying a nice long <laughs> siesta on the on the harbor. Uh, well, he's he's kind of a different fellow. He has spent um, decades as a minister overseas to the royal courts of. Britain and Austria, the big European powers, the big North European powers. And so he's kind of seen the wider world. Yes. The nobility at this time in Portugal is very... Provincial. Very Catholic, very medieval. It's oh, okay. It's old school kind of Inquisition-y Europe. Whereas um, the Marquis de Pombal has seen, you know, when he was in London, he was a, became a fellow of the Royal Society. He's gotten an enlightenment education and he is a new, forward-thinking gentleman. I like it. And Dom José the first. Did he cut his long sleeves? Portugal. Oh, <laughs> is that what they do? No, that was a Russian thing. Cut oh. your long sleeves. Oh, but this is exactly some... It would have been the same time. This is exactly some... I mean, as we'll see, Pombal very much becomes a Catherine the Great type figure. Modernization at all costs, even if that means the odd public execution. Well, sure. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> you get rid of the old guys. It's science, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so he comes up and gives the king the bad news and tells him, I want you to put me in charge of the disaster relief. We can come back from this. And the king, who is at wit's end, and in fact, this becomes a very formative thing for the king. For the rest of his life, he lives in fear of 
earthquakes. He, he, you know, he has, even though he didn't, he wasn't in Lisbon, he has vicarious PTSD. He, he prefers to sleep in a tent uh-huh. from now on rather than in a, um, oh, you sent me a picture of the little mermaid castle. Yeah. Can you see oh, it? Oh, look at that, man. This is like a, if you took seventh grade Portuguese, this would be the poster in your, in your classroom. <laughs> That's right. In it's, your junior high it's, classroom. It is. It's super kooky. Um, the, so the king for the rest of his life sleeps in a tent because he's terrified of ceilings falling on him. Whoa. Um, but must've been a hell of a tent. I'm sure he had a very nice tent, but the Marquis de Pombal is undaunted. He decides in that moment, I am going to rebuild Lisbon. And in fact, I'm going to rebuild Portuguese society with science. This is his chance to put the methods of the enlightenment as he understands them from London and Vienna to work. He's going to rebuild with science. Exactly. I'm hoping that happens in our own civilization. Can you imagine? After the cataclysm. Can you imagine the, you know, President uh, John Cena or whoever it is, President <laughs> The Rock, getting up in front of the, the wreckage and saying, America, we will rebuild with science. <laughs> Um, Electrolytes are what plants crave. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) President Brando. Within a year, uh, it's his progress is remarkable. Unlike any other disaster of this scope, there are no epidemics, no plagues result. Oh, from war from demolished Lisbon. Hmm. Um, they managed to to have clean water throughout the city. Yeah. The city is largely rebuilt and he being a man of science, he knows what to target. He targets, Science. You know, he puts drains in under all the streets. Mm-hmm. He puts pilings in along the waterfront so that the the riverbank won't liquefy next time. Everything is, you know, this is like when the levees broke. Every, except we didn't learn. Everything's for next time. You know, um, you have no place to stay when the levee breaks. This, that's what I hear. The the Baisha, the old town, you know, the the quaint old city in the right. in the heart of Lisbon the on Medina. the water is. Uh, you know, that's been leveled and it was, it was old windy streets. You know, it was, it was come with me to the Casbah and he builds a modern grid. He gets out his protractor. Which is funny because it's only in, in Lisbon, only the, the low flat kind of promenade is a grid. And then the rest of the city is a bunch of spaghetti. Still it's weird rabbit trails. Um, Well, it dates back to 1755 because he, you know, he's got theories, you know, it's not just that it's mathematically pleasing on a, map but if the streets are a grid it makes public transportation easier and we should get some of that sure it makes sewage easier it makes waste collection easier like this is how you get a modern city um with that kind of precision uh he installs a new building code which seems very forward thinking for 1755 Uh but given the trauma he's like all new construction will have firewalls of such and such specifications he and his he gets together with some engineers you know the leading thinkers of portugal at the time and invent what becomes to be called after him, the Marquis de Pombal, the Pombaline cage, which is kind of a wooden framework on which all new construction will be built, which doesn't, you know, even if the facade crumbles, yeah. the, the wooden f- frame or, or, or uh, superstructure or whatever can wiggle and the buildings will not fall. All of our buildings are built according to this premise. They are in Seattle and yeah. ho- hopefully in Anchorage. The, no. You know, the, the mortar of you, I understand if you have a brick house in Seattle, I have a civil engineer friend that told me the mortar will just liquefy and all the bricks will oh. just leave your house. Well, after the Nisqually earthquake, you saw that down in Pioneer Square, like yeah. the fronts came off of a bunch of buildings. 
You know, they could use some of these building codes in Pakistan, <laughs> even now. I mean, this seems crazy for 1755, right? But this yeah. guy is like, here's the fire code of Portugal. Yeah, wow. Um, they raised the water line. Basically, essentially what happened in Seattle after the fire. They, they build on top of the rubble because, first, you don't have to clear it away. Second, the waterfront portion of the city is now higher and therefore more ocean-resistant in case of future catastrophe. Yeah. So in the 20th century, people, you know, workers digging the Lisbon subway had to dig through 15 meters of 18th century Lisbon wreckage to get, you know, to, to dig the tunnels because it's still under there. Just like yeah. tourists who take the underground tour, here. Under, which I've never done. <clears throat> One time I was in Pioneer Square and I was walking down the sidewalk and there was all of a sudden in the middle of a sidewalk in front of the merchant's cafe, there was a railing and I walked over. I was like, what is this railing in the middle of the sidewalk? And I realized that it was an elevator that had come up through the sidewalk. You know, when you're down there and you walk across those metal plates, yeah, I've seen them in old movies. Yeah. They but, often get used for gags in like Harold Lloyd movies, those things going up and down it, for deliveries to sellers. I yeah, guess. yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, those metal plates open up like a, like a clamshell and yeah. an elevator comes up. Well, this elevator was just sitting up unguarded. You got to go stand on it and wait. Well, so I stood on it and I was like, oh, this is cool. And there was nobody around and there was a button. <laughs> and so I pushed it and the elevator went. Bzzz. You're in a Zork game now. And I was like, what's happening? And it took me down and all of a sudden I'm in the Seattle underground tour because there are all these interpretive signs and like a little collection of barrels with a mannequin who's like, I'm the shopkeeper, but it was, but no, nobody was there. And so I gave myself the Seattle underground tour, like creeping around and sneaking around down there. And, and then I felt like, Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. There were rats. It was a little freaky. This does seem perfect for you though. Like this, if this didn't happen to you, you would have to make that up mm. because you cannot, Never have seen the Seattle Underground being John Roderick, but also you can't go on the tour. I couldn't go on the being tour. John Roderick. Right. So I so so because being John Roderick is self-recapitulating. <laughs> the world created an elevator for you. Yeah. It was like somebody was somebody had to solve this problem and, and this is how this is how God managed. That's how you know Seattle is a simulation. <laughs> but like yeah. An, yeah. an elevator appears in the sidewalk when it's teleologically necessary for you to see the underground tour. Either that or I am completely uh, fake, like a, like a super duper. You've made up all your stories. Yeah. You no, were... well, no, not that, that I'm a hologram. Oh, you don't exist. No, I don't exist. I just think you're making up all the stories, actually. Yeah, well, but until, you, until, you, until they're all confirmed. Did you know that the Seattle underground tour, and I just discovered this, was a plot point in a big horror movie from last year? No. The movie, the the horror movie Malignant is no. all, the whole second act is set around the Seattle Underground Tour. Are there like ghosts of the Seattle Underground? Kind of. I don't want to give away how it works. It's, I it's, don't. There's, there's, there's an it style menace creeping the, the under. I don't city. like horror movies and I never go to them and I don't even want to know their plots. You don't want to know they exist. Let me, let me amend my story. There are no horror movies, Thank you. and in particular, there was not one last year that included as a plot element the Seattle Underground. I'm not ever, as part of my cosmology, you're never going to find that I sneak into a horror movie. You just snuck into a sewer full of rats. Well, yeah, but that's like- But a, there was no clown. But that's a real place. <laughs> uh, the Probably the most surprising and forward-thinking thing that the Marquis de Pombal did following the earthquake is he 
did what all great leaders do, and he mailed out a survey. To the residents of Lisbon. 670, yeah, he, he sent it out to maybe, you know, hundreds of residents of Lisbon, you know, respectable people who would have been able to observe the the quake, you know, clergy and merchants and, you know, wanting to find out what their perceptions were in different parts of the city. And as a result, we have a minute-by-minute minute account of what went down and what terrible things happened and what cost lives. And this is, as I alluded to earlier, kind of the beginning of the science of modern seismology. How do, you know, scientifically collecting data to see how earthquakes react and oh. how life is lost and how that loss can be mitigated. So so in collecting the firsthand stories, he could he could re uh, construct what yeah. happened. Like, I mean, to some degree, geologically, even oh. though even though he doesn't, you know, he can't measure the P waves and the S waves, and he doesn't know about faults and plates, but he can measure all the effects on the surface. This place shook like crazy. This place didn't exactly, huh? Um, you know, this many lives were lost to the, you know, in the first six minutes. This is what. Here are the roofs that collapsed. Here are the lives lost to, you know, the the wave to the fire. So, and this is all data that's still around. So the Lisbon earthquake can be exhaustively studied down to the minute, almost unlike any other 18th century event. Um, so, like the London fire happened a hundred years before. Did anything? Did anybody learn anything from the London fire? Is this the first time anybody learned anything from anything? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No one had ever learned anything before. No, the rebuilding of the London fire is also an enlightenment yeah. process. Yeah. Right? All that Christopher Wren architecture and, and whatnot. Right. And I think a lot of it is built with, let's not duplicate the awful conditions that led to the first London fire. Let's have fire prevention in mind. Um, but this is, you know, what what's different about this is that it's human measures against an act of God. And that's really the Ooh. and that's really the philosophical impact of the Lisbon earthquake that ended up concerning Rousseau and Voltaire and Immanuel Kant and every every deep thinking European for the next century or more. You know, Are there people that argued that God wanted to destroy Lisbon and that that we shouldn't intervene? Here's what's interesting. In Pombal's response to the earthquake in a very Catholic society, he says that uh, the governmental watchword is, we will bury the dead and we will take care of the living. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like something you could imagine a, a, a Giuliani or whatever saying. Mm-hmm. It sounds vaguely statesmanlike. Mm-hmm. But think about that in a Catholic country in 1755 where all the power is held by old school nobles and um, sinister Jesuits. Sorry, no, we love the Jesuits on Omnibus. Yeah, but they're admittedly sinister. <laughs> oh, 100%. That's what we love about them. But he's saying we will bury the dead. The, yeah. The dead are gone. Oh. All we can do now is take care of the living. There's very much a secular response to the earthquake. And this is mirrored in the philosophers that write about this. I mean, Voltaire was just aghast. He wrote a poem about the earthquake. It comes up in Candide. He couldn't believe that God would do such a thing. Like, this is a, I mean, believe it. Even though the <laughs> even though presumably 18th century Europe is full of privations and all manner of awfulness. Oh sure. This is the thing that makes people think God is either asleep at the switch or has mysterious animus against the people of urban Portugal or like it really makes people reckon with what their beliefs are. I mean there was a uh, uh, 100 years prior there was a 30 years war that really 
did a number on everybody there. But again, this is man's inhumanity oh, to man. Oh, sure, okay. The right. fact that God is rocking the foundations of the deep, which he, capital H, created himself back in Genesis, and God. bringing in walls of water despite his promise never to flood the earth again. Like, if you're, if, if back then, even an edu- you know, every educated, enlightened person had kind of these bedrock assumptions about a orderly theistic universe. Now, wait a minute. After the flood, I'm talking about the flood. The Noah flood. Did God promise never to flood the earth again? He did. He puts a rainbow in the sky. And that's the promise? Yeah. The oh. rainbow says, I will never again. I think this has come up on Omnibus. So we, I wasn't listening. So we know that when the Bible comes up, when Genesis <laughs> comes up, unless it's the band, John tunes out. So I, we know that the people we're speaking to in the future, or the creatures we're speaking to in the future, have not been brought low by flood because God has promised to Noah. That yeah, it, that it wouldn't happen again. It seems like since, I mean, just recently, God has has at least not. Uh, there must be an asterisk. He's like, not paying attention to the them. whole earth. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Even in Waterworld, there's yeah. still that place in the Himalayas at the end. God has not managed to flood the whole earth in Waterworld. But but I guess, I guess maybe if the waters recede within like a day or two, it doesn't count. <sighs> yeah. I mean, as long as there's any dry land at all. Look, it's really not that much of a promise, honestly, when you think about it. <laughs> like, I, right now, I could promise to you, John, yeah. that I will never again flood the entire earth. Yeah. And I, can, I will live by that promise. <laughs> and but, you seem unimpressed. But you're not God as much as, like, you, you are on this program. As much as I would like to be. <laughs> as much as you are on television. <laughs> but, but I, and I don't want to put you in the position of God's contract lawyer here trying to defend his... His, Defend him in court. His verbiage, his contract. Technically, Your Honor, a rainbow isn't admissible. The contract was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so this was a this, this was happening at a time when people in Europe were ready to have a secular response when it something. was possible even to conceive of a secular response. And Pombal's response is secular. You know, like he he take you know being an ambitious man, he takes this opportunity to really go to town on the previous powers in Portugal. The church and the old Catholic nobility. And this does include interrogations, torture, and public executions when people don't line up. He's very oh. much a, a Catherine the Great kind of a modernizing figure. No one expects the Portuguese in- Inquisition. <laughs> These guys did not expect it, and it was their loss. But, you know, this, between the, the shock of a, just the kind of the problem of evil shock that results— and the success of the secular response. This is kind of the beginning of our modern moment of God largely being exiled from public affairs. We no longer interpret the big events of the day in terms of what deity uh, wills about it, or or would you know would hope us to to learn, or you know you you see this today even when this was no longer a sign; it was now a uh, an event. Voltaire, even Voltaire couldn't take it as a sign. He thought this cannot be a sign from God. No God that I understand would do this. How do I understand a world where this is just a thing that can happen? And even Voltaire, believing in a God, just wondered how God could let it exist. The character of, um, I think it's Pangloss in Candide, who's kind of a, a dopey philosopher who insists that this must be the best of all possible worlds. That's a, it's a parody of a philosopher named Leibniz. Um, that's not right. Leibniz, Leibniz, I think. And, uh, that's, you know, that kind of, um, 
distrust of optimism and utopianism came to Voltaire through the Lisbon earthquake. He, huh. The Lisbon earthquake is what taught him that this could not be the best of all possible worlds because there's going to be an earthquake where Lisbon is still standing and there wasn't a 9.0 earthquake and 50,000 or more people aren't dead. This is this is peak Rousseau, too. I mean, this has got to be right. He had to be in his 40s, Do you know right? what Rousseau's takeaway is? <laughs> no. Rousseau's takeaway is, well, that they had it coming for living in a big... Uh, unnatural city. Oh, of course he wanted them to be living in a utopia. I think this deeply, this really reinforces Rousseau's beliefs that um, we should all be out in the forest the way man was meant to be Yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. our primitive splendor. Because when you're together in big cities, 50,000 people can die in a tsunami. Right. All the more reason to head to the new world. So, you know, whether your foundation of thought was God or Descartes, it got literally shaken by this earthquake, and I think it's effects we can still see today when um, issues in the public sphere overlap with religious belief. Yeah. Um, no longer can people ap- just appeal to, well, no, you have to do what I say because Leviticus. Yeah, You right. know, like, uh, you, you'll still hear that kind of thing at a school board meeting or from a nutball in the comment section. Well, but this was the this was the a part of the response to the to the pandemic. Mm. I mean, so many people said if God if this is how God wants to take me, um, I go. I've been vaccinated by the blood of the Lamb. That's right. But but you you notice that no mayors or governors were saying that. Is that true though? <laughs> in Idaho, no, wasn't be- because there a- they would they would. Here's what happens: they carry out those policies, but they have to invent secular rationalizations. Oh, okay. You know, they would carry out the same policies as the blood of the lamb weirdos, but they would say the commerce of Idaho is the lifeblood of Idaho, right, and then the all the Republican commerce. state senators would applaud. Oh, wait a minute, are they Kennedys? <laughs> Why does the governor of Idaho sound like one of the Kennedys? Plus, potatoes are the lifeblood of Idaho, <laughs> just like Prince Edward Island. Everybody knows that. No, it's the diamond mines, the secret diamond mines under Idaho. And the same thing happened during all the the Sturm and Drang over uh, same sex marriage. At, at the state level and then at the federal level, you know, starting with the Clinton era Defense of Marriage Act up through the 21st century, you could no longer put ads on TV that said, of course, um, we can't gay marry people. They're all bad. You know, so the, all the money would pour into lobbyists who would say, the family is an institution that has protected vulnerable women and children oh, yeah. for millennia. How do we know that changing the bedrock assumptions? So you have to frame it in this kind of post-enlightenment rhetoric. Sure, Jerry Falwell said there would be tidal waves, but you're right. right the The pundits all had some tortured analogy. If I have to make a birth or a wedding cake for two gay men. Right. What does this mean for civil liberties? Yeah, right. And and this is what the TV advertising says. And everybody hears that and thinks, check, gays are bad. Got it. But, but post really post enlightenment yeah. and post Lisbon, you have to couch all these things in economic or civil terms. Some kind of secular good has to be de- some kind of utilitarian good has to be demonstrated. Huh. Because we no longer sit for in the public sphere, God's wrath will result, or God hates masks and vaccines, or whatever these questionable premises are. So, if I understand you correctly, we owe a debt of gratitude to the Lisbon, Lisbon earthquake of 1755. That should be the shrine we all go to. Right. It's the birth of secular, pluralistic society. Those 50,000 dead people died. 
that we may not have to interpret things as signs from God. And I think they knew that. Yeah. They could sense it in the moment. And that concludes The Great Lisbon Earthquake, entry 548.1S1415, certificate number 30150 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you survive the cataclysmic act of God that ends your civilizations... It could be another Lisbon earthquake, by the way. Apparently, like, recent research has shown that... Lisbon is vulnerable? Yeah, the, that, that fault line is still active. And I think they're... they're I read that they're, in a couple of years, they're going to put new... This is very ominous. They're going to put new fiber optic cables out to the, the Azores and the Madeira Islands, all of Portuguese Oh, yeah, connect island. them up so they get high-speed internet so I can live there and continue to do omnibus. They might already have good internet, but are you one of these Americans that wants to retire to, to inexpensive Portugal? I keep hearing about... Uh, that that Portugal is like the cheapest place to live in in I, I Europe. I heard that too. Is, are all the rocks uh, indie rock guys of your generation uh, zeroing in on Portugal? I'm just wondering, and and we have some Portuguese listeners to our show who are in communication with me, and I've gotten a couple of emails from them saying, "Hey, look, it's not super easy to live in Portugal. Nobody speaks English here, and you know, like, don't think that you're going to move." down to Faro and just live, live the life. Live like a king. Yeah, live like a king. You're like going to have to just eat roasted red peppers out of the jar just like we do. But the, th- the thing is, I have looked at real estate there, and for 350,000 euros, you can get a pretty livable place in, uh, in southern Portugal. And in Porto, if you want to live a little further north, I saw, I saw a building in Porto for like 600,000 euros that you'd buy a f- five-story... Building made uh, built in 1802, right in the center of town. I was really coveting that place. It's going to be you and a couple guys from Not a Surf seeing each other yeah. at the market every morning as you buy your figs. Yeah, no, I'm going to run it as a youth hostel. <laughs> I'm going I'm to run it as a youth hostel, but you know you have to apply to stay there. You can't just show up. I think they already have Wi-Fi in the islands, but the point is when they replace these cables, they're going to put in seismic sensors. Oh, cool. So that there's better oh, tsunami oh, warning. Right, of course. So you get it. Well, were you- I think to this day, there's no signage of the kind that we have on the West Pacific coast. Like, like uh, Portugal would be caught relatively unawares, I think, by offshore earthquakes today. Were, were, you, were you hip to the story that the, the, the big eruption- Oh, yeah. You told me about this on the Canary Islands. Yeah, on the Canary Islands was going to create a mega tsunami that wiped out Florida. But then nobody f- read the follow-up story, as always happens, which is, we don't think this will That's cause That's actually not going to happen The yet. models were wrong. And so when that big eruption started happening, my sister, who was a who's like a super mega tsunami truther, uh, <laughs> she was running around for a couple of days. I didn't know that days. was a thing. <laughs> she was like, this is it. This is the big one. And then there were all these stories that uh, where, you know- seismologists were like, mm, yeah, it's kind of not, that's not how it's going to play out. It was, it was another one of these, oh, I wish that natural, natural disaster was bigger than it turned out to be. Cause who wouldn't want a 500 foot wave to wash over Florida? That's kind of my dream, right? It would solve a lot of problems in America. Honestly, I have a good friend that lives on the other side in Tampa. I wouldn't want to see her washed away, but otherwise... Actually, the drummer of Not a Surf lives in Florida. I wouldn't <laughs> want to see he him. Hasn't moved, he hasn't moved to Portugal yet. <laughs> no, no. To, to your little village. No. Uh, I prefer the, I prefer the Gulf side as well. I'm kind of embarrassed that you 
that I just outed myself at your prompting as someone who's looking at as, real estate as, in as Portugal. As one of these guys. You were like, oh, you're probably one of those guys. And I was like, yeah, actually. it's My, my sister-in-law is like constantly like, okay, maybe Malta. Like what's... What's the ret- what's the retired cheap place with the nice climate? No, you know my place has always been Trieste. Mm. I want to live in Trieste because it's so close to everything. Slovenia is right there. You can be you can be in, in Vienna in <laughs> the, four hours. The crossroads of the world, everybody. Slovenia is right there. <laughs> you can be in Belgrade in five hours. You can be you can go everywhere. Venice is two hours by train. So I've been looking at property in Trieste too. And I feel like that might be, oh, I found this little house in the center of Trieste. It's a bachelor pad. Don't though. talk it up. You're just, you're raising prices. Oh, you're right. As you, I don't know. I know you got a lot of crypto and it's going to, you're going to be fine. Don't move to Trieste. I don't have enough money to just do whatever I Trieste want. Trieste is a crap hole. It's close to <laughs> Slovenia, if you can believe it. 300,000 euros is the, is my peak. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Omnibus Project. You can follow us individually at Ken Jennings, excuse me, and at John Roderick. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can hang out with other futurelings uh, on all of the above places by looking for the futurelings, and they are hilarious and smart and great. Uh, You can mail us things to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And you can support the show and increase my chances of ever being able to live in Trieste. You can increase my budget to... Send John your Ethereum (laughs) and your Shiba Inu coin. To, you know, get me into that 400,000 euro uh, class. Trieste Retirement Fund. At patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Now we kid... And you may think that we are living high on the hog, but in fact, I live in a concrete bunker where the where the water weeps in. Deep below the earth. Deep below the earth. Close to, and it will be liquefied instantly in the mm-hmm. next, in the big one. There are no diamond mines here or potatoes, just mushrooms. And I can't, and I don't know enough about them to sell them. Uh, so support us at patreon.com slash omnibus project. So you, you mentioned the mail. Have we ever got a wedding invitation before? Maybe once. Someone threatened to, to invite us to their wedding, and I think we did get one invite. Angela and Nashoba are inviting us to what would certainly be our first Star Wars-themed wedding. Oh, look at that. Da, Wait da, a minute, but that's, da, that, da, that da, symbol da, on the da, back da, is da, what, the Empire or the Resistance? I think this is the Alliance. Is that right? Which one has the Rebel pointy Alliance. things? It kind of looks a little evil. I guess I've never seen it just in shadow like that. There aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of Star Wars theming on the wedding. It doesn't say we're going to be eating Bantha steaks or whatever. I tried to convince my daughter the other day that the rebels were actually the bad guys and the empire just wanted to bring peace and stability to the, to the universe. Think of all the, is this the Kevin Smith argument? Think of all the contractors on the Death Star. She was so outraged. And I was like, there's a reason that they are a ragtag group who has to hide on ice planets. Nobody likes them. This is ISIS. <laughs> the Rebel Alliance is ISIS. They are a shitty little group of, of, uh, of bad mouthers. We have to RSVP by Monday, by the way, if we want to go to this wedding. Where in is it? So St. Marie, Michigan. Am I saying that right? Sault St. Marie? How do you say that? Well, I would say Sault St. Marie. Let's let's try that and we'll get a lot of letters from Michiganites. Oh, guess what? It's at it's oh, this is good. This is not Star Wars related, but it's It's at it, 420 PM. Even better. It's on 222, 2022 at 222 in the afternoon. Oh. It's even better. 222, 2022 is a Tuesday. 
It's Tuesday, 2-22-2022. By the, by the time this show airs, this wedding will be, have been a month ago and possibly already annulled given their, <laughs> given their Leia and Han. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure they'll be very happy. Do you think they'll dress as Leia and Han? They seem, they seem the, like they might. <laughs> their invitation says, I love you, I know. Oh. They have an Amazon wish list, but they would like you to buy the stuff elsewhere. Bezos doesn't need the money. Good. Vaccines and masks are required. Boosters strongly recommended. Good. The RSVP envelope does have a stamp on it. We should send so in. So we should steam it off. I'm going to send in good wishes. Wait, do, do you think we should uh, we should take your private uh, Ken copter and go to the wedding? What would they What would they do? Nobody's going like, to Nobody's going to give to the Patreon if they know about the Ken copter. It's not. It's not like we're Bill Murray and and can be very exciting showing up at no, your wedding. No, it People would be like, like, who are these weirdos? Wow, look at, isn't that the guy from Jeopardy? I'm going to say yes if I happen to be in Sault Ste. Marie that day. Um, yeah, send good wishes. Congratulations, nice. Angela and the show. But if you're listening, may the force be with you. Did we ever read this one on the show? Did we read this, this oddly um, shaped postcard? postcard shaped like an Estonian uh, watchtower? You know, I always when I see those watchtowers, I always think they're water towers, and then I get inside them and I realize no, they're hollow. All the windows seem to argue against them being. Is it? Well, no, that water tower on, on, in Volunteer Park looks almost exactly like that. That's actually true. And it has windows. But I assume that was like a, that was appro- appropriating the look of a, of a little castle. Is it, is it, where in Estonia? Tallinn. That's a nice town. I gotta say. Apparently it's the Silicon Valley of Europe, says Dan. If we have already read this on the show, I don't know. I just found it in my folder. If we did not read this note that was sent months and months ago. <laughs> thanks for writing to us from Estonia, Dan. I love this postcard that is shaped like a water tower or possibly a castle. Did I tell you I was in Tallinn and uh, and I uh, put it on the internet that I was there because I used to be on the internet. And someone in Tallinn said, hey, uh, I'm a fan of Omnibus. Or no, 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 wait. Said, I listen to Omnibus. Do you want to meet for coffee? And I was like, you know, what are the chances, right? I like to meet people overseas. I met him in Tallinn for coffee. He worked for the government. He was very well dressed, young young man in a tie. He wasn't a Long Winters fan. He was a oh, omnibus? maybe he was an, a Long Winters fan too. He was he was a, he was a well. Wait, no, it was. I've told you this story because he he had all the Long Winters records mm. and had seen us perform. And at some point in our conversation, I said, "Well, it's just it's always fun to like meet a fan that lives in a in a place like Estonia. I would never have guessed it." And he said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." I didn't say I was a fan. <laughs> and I was like, oh. He's like, I mean, I have your records and I, I like I mean, them all. I, I enjoy your work and go to coffee with you. But I'm not like a fan. And it was such a European, like a Northern European thing where That's it's funny. like a fan is. A little. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a person that's like tripping. I'm not tripping. I like you the normal, healthy amount. Yeah, and I, let's keep it like that. I mean, I like your band. I don't like like you. I was like, okay, geez. <laughs> One of my books is out in Estonian. Is it in Estonian? Yeah, Maphead's been translated into Estonian. Uh, Maphead's is a good book, by the way. Thank you. That's yeah, very kind. I really enjoyed it. Well, now Estonian speakers can enjoy it as well. Also, if, also Chinese, Korean, and maybe Russian. If you are listening to Omnibus in China, Korea... Russia or Estonia. Oh, or the Spanish-speaking world. There's a Spanish one. Uh, or anywhere in the Spanish-speaking world. Write us and let us know. And also go get Maphead. Go get Maphead. It may be out of print. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, 
We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We have no, we don't even know if my Estonian books are remaindered or not. Probably. They're out there. We hope and pray that the catastrophe that we fear may never come, or at least that if it does, Lisbon will be spared this time. Haven't they suffered enough? Well, I just hope we rebuild according to scientific principles. Exactly. We want a grid, a big grid. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>